Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Order. Order. Thank you. If I can encourage you, ladies and gentlemen, to take your seats, please. We're going to kick off. On behalf of the Exposed Campaign, it is a great pleasure to welcome you all to the House of Commons this evening. Thank you very much for being here. The first piece of news this evening is that I am not Sharon Hodgson, MP. Um, Sharon, I am Paul Woolley from Bible Society. Sharon, uh, who is um, going to be introducing the evening uh, to us, uh, like other MPs, is having to vote throughout the next hour. Um, the uh, parliamentary authorities have scheduled three votes that coincide exactly during the duration of this event this evening. So that's going to um, affect things a little bit. Um, MPs who were going to be present with us, they will be with us as and when they can throughout the course of the evening. And the purpose of uh, this event is simply to shine a light on corruption and the devastating effect that it has, especially amongst the poorest in the world. It is well known that an estimated $1 trillion is lost globally every single year through corruption. And of course, that affects all people, but especially the poorest across the globe. 25% of Africa's GDP is lost in corruption. That's the size of the problem. And so Exposed 2013 is a global cause to action against corruption and the poverty that results from it. Of course, Christians all over the world have every reason to take a stand against corruption and seek to eradicate it. The Bible is absolutely jam-packed full of injunctions against corruption and injustice. Uh, there is a, a constant call on the part of the Old Testament prophets and, of course, Jesus in the New Testament for people to be honest in their dealings with each other. And I'm sure that we'll hear more about that from Dr. Campolo shortly. It's a great pleasure to have you with us this evening, Dr. Campolo. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Dr. Campolo has been an outspoken global voice for justice on behalf of the poor for many, many years. He's done a huge amount to show the church how strongly the Bible calls Christians to seek the good of all people in society, especially the poorest. He is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Eastern University in Pennsylvania, the author of 39 books and a regular media commentator in the United States in particular. We're also really thrilled to have Christopher Lando with us this evening. Uh, Christopher worked for the BBC for seven years, including two years as religious affairs correspondent for the BBC World Service. Christopher was responsible for that intimate, infamous interview that took place with the Archbishop of Canterbury when the subject of Sharia law was introduced. Uh, he, I'm sure that's a, a good omen for the <laughs> discussion that will happen this evening. We're obviously hoping it, it will generate as significant headlines and waves throughout the world as that particular interview did. Uh, Christopher has since left the BBC, not, I should add, as a consequence of that interview. He is an Anglican ordinant. 
He will shortly be a curate in London. He is in the process of writing a doctorate on a theology of disagreement, which is perhaps another good omen for the confrontation ahead on these very important issues. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the idea is that uh, we'll aim to finish our formal time here together at 8.15. There'll then be an opportunity for drinks and canapes through next door. You're very welcome to stay behind for that. But please, would you give a very warm welcome and round of applause to Christopher Lando and Dr. Tony Campolo. Thank you. So just to uh, explain the format of the evening, I will guide us through a conversation for the first uh, half an hour or so, and then we'll open up for questions. So do please be thinking about what you might like to ask Dr Campolo. And when we get to the questions, I'll also be keen to know the context from which you're speaking as well. Um, Paul has just said that Christians have every reason to take a stand. But I suppose the very fact that there is this campaign implies that Christians haven't been taking as much of a stand as they might. And how do you make the justification for Christians in particular taking this issue of corruption so seriously? I think Christians have been very, very effective in dealing with sin on a personal level. Um, They know that the Bible teaches to be honest. The Bible asks us to do good. What we have difficulty doing is moving beyond the individualistic level and dealing with systems. And what we have in the world today is not just a problem with certain individuals being evil, and as we Christians would say, needing to get to know Jesus and be transformed by that personal relationship. There's something about the way systems are set up, the way in which they function, that makes corruption inevitable. And may I even say, this is going to be a hard one, desirable. That ought to send this off in the right direction. You say, how can you say that corruption is desirable? Let me give you a scenario. An earthquake occurs in Haiti. There are 20 doctors who board an airplane in Miami, ready to be rushed into the country to address the severe medical needs of the people of that earthquake who suffer. 250,000 people become physical casualties in one way or another. We don't even know how many people died, but it was astronomically high. But the number of people who had broken legs, broken arms, severe. So here are these doctors ready to go. And lives are at stake. The problem is that nobody is going to get into the country to practice medicine until he has or she has the proper documentation. To get the documentation will take at least a week. However, there's an airfield 50 miles outside of the capital. And there's a corrupt customs officer there who for $1,000 will wave all of these people through so that they can do their work. You're in the existential situation. I mean, let's not get highfalutin. Hundreds of people are going to die unless these doctors get in there immediately. It's going to take a week if we go through the legal means. 
But if we go through this illegal means with $1,000, total corruption, the job gets done. I'm not going to ask you the simple question. What I would thought you I was wondering whether we should. What, <laughs> what would you do? Yeah. Uh, what would you do? Uh, would you not pay this corrupt politician $1,000? Primarily because it's efficient. You say, well, the long-term effects... I love the line by uh, Kenneth Galbraith that in the long term, everybody's dead. <laughs> uh, the reality is that uh, corruption exists because it's a very efficient way of getting things done. Let's put it on a local level. Let's put it in Philadelphia. Incidentally, I'm speaking as an America, American, so 90% of what I say you're going to have to discount <laughs> because your system is very different than ours. And the way corruption operates in every country is very different. Uh, and uh, the way corruption operates in the United States is highly contingent on things that do not exist here, i.e., the way we run political campaigns in the United States makes corruption an inevitability. Note, it's legal corruption, but it's corruption nevertheless. Uh, Will Rogers, one of our prime humorists in the 1920s, once said nobody should complain about the U.S. Congress. It's the best Congress that money can buy. <laughs> and in reality, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the Supreme Court passed this bill, uh, Citizens United, in which corporations should be treated as individuals and they could make contributions to candidates for Congress or the Senate and remain anonymous. The congressman would never have to reveal who gave them the money. Now let me just explain what you don't have here in the United Kingdom. You don't have a campaign if you're running for the U.S. Congress. If you're running for the parliament here, I mean, imagine every two years you would have to raise at least two and a half million dollars to run the campaign to stay in office. Two and a half million, did you hear me? If you're running for the Senate, you're going to have to raise six million dollars at least to run your campaign. That's minimal. If you're running for the presidency, you're going to have to raise a billion dollars. Now, where does this money come from? There are labor unions. There are uh, oil companies. There are pharmaceutical companies, there are medical societies, all of which raise huge amounts of money to finance these campaigns with the obvious effect that those who they finance are obligated to vote in accord with their interests, to pass laws that will allow them to be corrupt. For instance, two presidents, Bill Clinton, Romney. Bill Clinton's sin is very individualistic. Agreed? We know what he did and who he did it with. And we were outraged. Mr. Romney in this last campaign paid 14% of his income in taxes, where the rest of America paid 36% of their income for taxes. Because the laws were written by people who were influenced by rich donors who made sure that the tax laws were written in such a way that there would be deductions and loopholes for the rich that weren't available to the poor. Please note, this is legal bribery. It's legal bribery. You bribe your congressman in a legal way. The Supreme Court says it's legal. But you are buying a vote. Note, what is the difference between that and walking into a congressman's office and saying, I want you to pass a bill that will serve the interests of my company. Here's $10,000. 
What's the difference between that and a secret campaign contribution that has the same effect? Answer, the one is legal, the other is illegal, but the effects are the same. So we have to look at the way in which systems function and ask ourselves a simple question. Are we being too simplistic when we say all we have to do is get rid of a few corrupt individuals when you have an election system that is not going to change in America? You know why? Because the only people that could change the system are the people that got elected because of the system. So we all know what the problem is, we all know why it has to change, and we all know it's not going to change because of the reasons that I just gave you. I mean, it sounds a little bit like a council of despair, but can I take you back to the doctor getting off the plane in Haiti? What should the doctor have done? And is there a distinctively Christian response? Well, the Christian response is to always do the right thing. <laughs> the question is, what is the right thing? Once again, uh, it's a little complicated issue. I, I think the doctors should have landed and gotten arrested. And I think the outrage might have, in fact, affected immediate change. So is this a principle a bit like um, Christians standing up for pacifism, for example, rather than necessarily engaging in what they might call yeah. a just war? Is it more powerful to always stick to the truth, even if the more immediate yeah. gain isn't fulfilled? We've got a lot of government people here, and I have to say I'm one of those uh, persons like Martin Luther King and Gandhi who believe in nonviolent resistance. The question is, is that realistic? Um, I got a, uh, I did an interview on this very subject just about two weeks ago on the BBC. They called me and, and they said, uh, you're a red letter Christian. We have this movement in the United States that we kind of initiated out of Eastern University of saying it's time to take the words of Jesus seriously. Very interesting statement. You say, but of course, but nobody really does. Uh, Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and take up the cross and follow me. And you say, Campolo, you're making it sound as though it's going to be hard for rich people to get into heaven. That's not my line. <laughs> does it not say this? Uh, does it not say, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If you were to take a survey of Christians in the United States, the evangelicals would overwhelmingly support capital punishment, even though Jesus says it's no longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You say, but if somebody commits a capital crime, shouldn't there be capital punishment? It's no longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Are we going to take Jesus seriously? It's the division bell. So I worry. thought it was the Lord stopping the <laughs> <program. laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we have to ask these questions. Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, would, what do we do about these things? I mean, Gandhi said, everybody knows what Jesus taught, except for Christians. That's a strong statement. Uh, we have a comedian in the United States that's very obscene and likes to pick on the church, which means that we ought to listen to him. And he said this, whenever I meet a Baptist minister, and I'm a Baptist, you don't have to be Baptist to go to heaven, amen? But why take a chance? That's what I want to know. Why are you doing that? He says, whenever I meet a Baptist minister who has two coats, I know I'm dealing with a hustler. You know what he's referring to, don't you? Jesus says, 
You say, well, you can't take Jesus literally. Why not? And that's exactly where the Red Letter Christian movement stands. It says, let's take Jesus at his word. Let's do what he asks us to do. Let's be the people that he asks us to be. I contend that the problem of the church is this, that we think that we're Christians if our theology is correct. And that's why we're so heavily into the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul gives us our theology. You won't learn about justification by faith by reading the Gospels. You really won't. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You're not going to find that in the Gospels. You're going to find that in Paul. If you're looking for justification by faith, salvation by grace, the tenements, the tenets of the Christian faith, you've got to go to Paul. If you want the lifestyle of the citizens of the kingdom of God, You've got to go to the Gospels. Jesus teaches the kingdom of God and the lifestyle that we are supposed to embrace. So Christians have been good since the Reformation, especially both Catholics and Protestants have been good at trying to get their theology soundly biblical. But we haven't gotten our lifestyles solidly biblical. And uh, I think if you go to the teachings of Jesus... Uh, you would say you do not compromise with evil under any circumstances. But in practice, that means, for example, for Christian aid agencies going to work in the developing world, they can't take their backhanders of US dollars with them to get the job done. So is it not about... I, I mean, are you suggesting that Christians should get used to being a whole lot less effective in the world's terms in order to stamp out corruption. I mentioned the BBC's interview with me and the guy said to me, I hope it wasn't you. It wasn't me. <laughs> well, if you take Jesus seriously, we'd all be living very foolish lives. To which I said, exactly. Whoever's, I, I mean, American evangelists on television like to make it sound like if you follow Jesus, there's no problems. There's no difficulty. Everything will work out well. As a matter of fact, you'll prosper. If you make Jesus your choice, you'll drive a Rolls Royce. I mean, it goes into this kind of thing. The truth is that the lifestyle of Jesus in social practice is foolishness. And you know who said that first? The Apostle Paul. He said it's foolishness. It's, it's foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the, to the Jews. Indeed it is. And the question is, do Christians become people who are so countercultural that they're laughed at? That's a good question. Because if we are to take Jesus literally, we would be non-militarist, we'd abolish capital punishment in the United States, we'd be giving our money to the poor, the United States is a country in which the evangelical community of which I am a part. Let me say why I'm an evangelical. I believe in the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed, number one. Number two, I believe that salvation comes by having a personal transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. Number three, I have a very high view of scripture. I think the Bible was inspired by the Spirit of God. And those who wrote the books produced a, a message that is an infallible guide for faith and practice. So I, I'm an evangelical in this respect. Having said that, the evangelical community in the United States 
and I don't know what it's like over here in Britain, it may be that you people are being influenced by those of us in the United States. And you better watch out, because we've got a, a real problem uh, over there in, in our country. But I think that Jesus does call us to absolute honesty, uh, that your yea must be yea, and your nay must be nay. You must, in fact, toe the line of righteousness. So we say that, and then we run into a situation like I just described in Haiti, and you say, what am I going to do? Um, so there you have it. But how much is, is the responsibility in the here and now, and how much is sorting out the world's problems, not the Christian priority now? So, uh, I mean, I was talking to someone about this, and... Um, Mark chapter 4 came up, the, the image of um, when Jesus says, is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket or under the bed and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. There it is. Well, and you see, I was talking about this passage and saying, well, does that resonate with the idea of, of the exposed campaign? And someone said to me, well, actually, that's about eschatological realisation that's about in the end times when Jesus you know, returns as judge those things will be sorted out and in the here and now Christians are called to proclaim the gospel um, and to you know, take the message out um, and the corruption stuff might be a bit of a distraction from that well you British are to be blamed for that you realise that it was John Nelson Darby uh, down there in uh, Plymouth that first initiated this concept that the Sermon on the Mount is not for the here and now. That the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom here on earth, then we can apply the Sermon on the Mount. That kind of hermeneutics does not jive with me. As a matter of fact, it didn't exist before John Nelson Darby. Read Luther, read Aquinas, uh, read uh, Augustine, read any of the great church articulators of the gospel and all of them as say nothing that would sound like that but it's you Brits that made this popular popular and it's popular all over the world and and so when you start dealing with poverty uh, a lot of the evangelicals will get nervous and say why doesn't the church focus on its real mission and when you ask the real mission of the church they say it's giving people tickets so they can get into heaven when they die and if that's what you're about, it's a very uninteresting thing. And you're going to have a church full of elderly people who are getting ready to die. Like me. I'm old. I go to weddings and the bride's grandmother looks better to me than the bride. You know, I'm old. That's who you're going to find in church. I mean, if it's about the next world, that's one thing. But what if it's about this world? What about Jesus? When Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? This is obviously not a Pentecostal gathering here today. <laughs> that was me. That was mild. I will give you one more chance. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? Amen. That needs to resonate through the halls of this parliament. Indeed, the kingdom is to become an existential reality. It's to be here. It's to be now. And Jesus was saying, I want to create a group of people who will create the kingdom here and now. And getting rid of corruption is a very big part of establishing the kingdom of God in the here and now. Can I ask you about the red letter Christian movement that underpins so much of your work and, and chimes um, with this? Um, in terms of this idea of 
the red letters, Jesus' own words in the Bible, having a, a kind of preeminence uh, for Christians. I just wonder how much that really can cash out and lead our moral lives in the way that you suggest it does. Um, because, of course, there are so many of the big-ticket issues which either aren't there in the red letters at all, or the red letters don't give us clarity because they contradict each other. So, I mean, can the red letter movement help us as much as you're suggesting it can? Yes, it can. I, uh, I do think that the early Christian church was known not for its theology. Its theology probably didn't get straightened out until the Council of Nicaea. The early church was known for its lifestyle. They were called people of the way. And the early Christians called themselves followers of Jesus. And the word Christian basically meant imitator of Christ. The crucifixion is up for discussion these days, largely because a lot of Brits have raised the question. Uh, namely, what is the meaning of the crucifixion? What is the meaning of the atonement? And there are many meanings. One that has come out of one of your theologians, N.T. Wright, has to be taken into consideration. That the cross was necessary for a variety of reasons, most of all to atone for sin, but also the crucifixion was necessary so that Jesus could live out what he taught. On the cross he did. Blessed are the meek. How did he go to the cross? Meekly. Like a lamb led to his shearers, he opened not his mouth. Blessed are ye when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Did he not endure that? Blessed are, are, are the merciful. I mean, he shows mercy on the people that crucify him. Forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. You go through the whole set of Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and everything that's in there, Jesus himself lived out and he got crucified. And you say, well, see, it's how impractical it is. And Jesus said, and if you're not willing to be crucified, don't join my movement. This is a movement who are, of people who are ready, may I quote some red letters, who are ready to take up their cross and follow me. Now, Christianity Today criticized the movement and said, Campolo acts as though the red letters of the Bible are more important than the black letters of the Bible. Well, in some respects they are. Not because I said so, but because Jesus said so. How many times in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus say, this is what was written by Moses. This was what was taught of old. But I give you a new commandment. I don't want to be nasty, but when he says it's a new commandment, I think he means it's a new commandment. And it takes precedence over the old commandment. There's no question in my mind. There's no question in my mind that the morality that I find in the Sermon on the Mount is superior to any morality that I've seen ever before in history, including the Hebrew Bible. This is the ultimate morality. Sacrificing for the poor, selling what you have, giving to the poor, uh, abandoning violence. Whenever the word of violence comes up, somebody always says to me, doesn't the Bible say, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's? To which I say, you're right. And then I always quote Dorothy Day, who said, after you've given everything to God that belongs to God, there's really not much left for Caesar. And there's truth to that statement, is there not? 
So, yeah, I do think that this radical Christianity is what the world is looking for. Now, let me just say this. We are losing young people from the church at a rate that staggers the imagination. And the reason why they leave the church is easy to ascertain if you interview them. Sociologists do that sort of thing. And here's what they say. We think Jesus is wonderful. We think the church stinks. You'll hear that over and over again. Go to any university campus, interview people, that's what they will say. The church is a problem. Jesus is not. We love Jesus. We don't like the church. The church is full of hypocrites. To which I always say, that's why you're going to be happy when you meet us. You're right. The church is full of hypocrites. Come and join us. The minute you walk in, you're going to say, my kind of people. Because we're all hypocrites, are we not? We are all hypocrites striving to overcome our hypocrisy. And that's what the church is about, is it not? It's a group of people who come together, who recognize their hypocrisies, and are doing the best by scripture and prayer to overcome the hypocrisy that has become part of their lives. And part of this is what I just gave in that illustration in Haiti. Namely, it's hypocritical to do this. And I think it's up to these doctors, it's up to the church to figure out ways of overcoming hypocrisy and the way to do it. And here's where the parliaments of the world can help. They can make the system so efficient, devoid of paperwork that is so complex that it takes 100,000 lawyers to figure out what the law says. We can simplify the law, we can make it efficient, so that it takes an hour, not a week, to get approval of what is legitimate. That's the responsibility of Parliament. And I think that as we sign this petition uh, against corruption, we should be simultaneously committing ourselves, putting pressure on governments all over the world to become more efficient so that corruption does not exist. Robert Merton, one of the prime sociologists of America, the dean of American sociology for several years, in his book, Social Theory and Social Structure says, when a societal system does not provide legitimate means for reaching legitimate goals, then people will seek illegitimate means for reaching legitimate goals. We have to change the way the system works. We have to make it simple. We have to make it effective. We have to make it efficient. And just because we got a big country like the United Kingdom or a bigger country like the United States does not mean we cannot do this. We can do it. We must do it. It is the task of Parliament to really show some parsimony in the making of law. I wonder how you actually see, in practical terms, the work of Christians to actually engage in this kind of way. I mean, is it just about signing petitions, that kind of thing that people from across the Christian spectrum can do? And I'm thinking, for example, of some of the issues that are causing huge challenges at the moment for the church. In this country, the whole question of gay marriage is a a hot potato at the moment. And I'm interested that in your, your book on the Red Letter Revolution, you basically say that's just an issue that needs to be devolved to the local church. And as a Christian reading the book, you know, 
go and find a church that, that kind of accords with the sort of view that you have. And I suppose in this country's context, there has been a higher ideal about what the church might offer to the nation through having bishops in the House of Lords, if you like. And do we just have to shrug our shoulders and say that kind of big established Christianity has had its day and um, that way of influencing the political process and in a, instead it can only be the grassroots up or in a place like Britain is there still uh, a, a place for, for both? Let's take a, uh, an Episcopal system such as you have. I was talking to a bishop of a diocese in the United States, an Episcopal bishop i.e. Anglican, uh, about this whole question, because I'm Baptist and believe that local churches should make decisions. I asked him, if the Episcopal Church decides to reject gay marriage, and there is a liberal priest who has a large congregation and is sending in his apportioned funds from the church to the diocese every month. And he performs a gay marriage, what will you do? Here's cynicism. Well, I'd send him a letter of protest and ask him to cease and desist from ever doing that again. I said, what if he refuses and does it again? He said, I'd send him a second letter. And then a third letter, I said, yes. And he said rather sheepishly, I said, would you act? He said, the state of the church and the need for money is such that we probably wouldn't. He was being honest with me. That's why I'm not giving you his name of the diocese. I said, let's reverse it. Suppose you've got a liberal bishop, or rather a conservative bishop, who said we're not going to allow for, uh, for, for gay marriage in our diocese. And in the United States, it does become a diocese issue, interestingly enough. They brought it down from church level to diocese level. Uh, and suppose this uh, conservative person refused to marry a gay couple that was in the church. What would you do? And it was the same thing. I said that in the end, what the local church wants is what's going to happen, isn't it? He said, I suppose we're all Baptist under the skin. <laughs> That's in America. I don't think that would happen here in the United Kingdom. Do you follow me? Having said that, I have to contend something that is very churchy, that you people don't have to deal with, that we have to deal with. As you've read my book, so I suggested in the United States this would work perfectly, that the church ought to, the government ought to get out of the marrying business completely. I mean, the government should not be legalizing gay marriage, nor should it be legalizing heterosexual marriage. The church should not marry people, or rather the state should not condone marriages one way or the other. You say, well, what does the state do? It provides civil rights. Whether you're gay, whether you're heterosexual, you should go down to the city hall, register, and you get the same rights if you're a gay couple or if you are a heterosexual couple. Then, if you want to call it a marriage, you go to a church. And the church marries you. 
here in the United Kingdom. Does the church decide who can take the sacrament? It doesn't, does it? Uh, excuse me, does the state determine who can take the sacrament? No. No. Does the church, does the state decide who can be baptized? No. Do you believe that marriage is a sacrament? Then why would the government prescribe who can and who cannot engage in this sacrament? It's up to the church to decide. And if in your system the Anglican Church decides against gay marriage, that seems to be a legitimate thing. But I think the government should stay out of the business of calling civil unions marriages. What I'm trying to get at is um, whether you conceptually see the kind of campaign against corruption or Christian engagement on any of these moral issues as something that can only happen effectively with a kind of popular coalition, which happens regardless of what the church leaders are saying, and frankly regardless of how much power they can influence from the top of the pyramid down. Or is there a place for um, the churches to have that kind of unified national voice? Let's take the Wilberforce story, which you all know here. Certainly in the Houses of Parliament, you obviously know the Wilberforce story. What had happened prior to Wilberforce taking the seat was there was spreading throughout the United Kingdom, through all churches, Anglican, nonconformist churches like Baptist, Presbyterian, there was spreading a message of the dignity of human beings and the evil of slavery. It was there. Now here's where Max Weber the German sociologist of great report, comes in. However, the ethos of the culture may be supporting something, may be in favor of something. But Weber says, unless a charismatic personality emerges on the scene to give voice to that, nothing will happen. If we're gonna end corruption, Two things have to happen. Petitions have to be signed. Sermons have to be preached. The ethos of the culture has to change. But somebody has got to be the charismatic personality who stands up and gives voice to the issue. Wilberforce did that. In the United States, attitudes opposing segregation had been growing and growing and growing and growing. But what was necessary? a Martin Luther King to emerge seemingly out of nowhere, to suddenly articulate this in ways that were irrefutable as he stands on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and screams, I have a dream. And the dream is so magnificent and so spiritual and so biblically based that nobody can say this is wrong. So we need two things. And I think the Evangelical Alliance is starting to do one thing to create the ethos. But it's up to somebody in the parliament, somebody in the House of Lords, somebody out there to become that charismatic person. One of my friends said, the Bible never asks how. That's what we're dealing with. How are we going to end corruption? The Bible never asks the question how. The Bible always asks the question, who? 
Who will go for us? Who shall we send? The Bible is filled of stories of people who heard the call of God and as individuals stood up. A Daniel, a Moses, coming down through history. And I ask the question, not what will the evangelical community do? We can do a great deal. We can create the ethos. But will there be somebody in parliament? Will there be somebody in government who will say, this is the issue? I can ask a very simple question. Can you tell me what other issues Wilberforce was concerned about? I don't think I could name them. And I've read biographies on him. He became a one-issue parliamentarian. This was it. And he wasn't going to let up until this thing was dealt with strongly and powerfully. And that's what happened. And we're not going to get rid of Congress unless we have people who provide this ethos and a charismatic leader who will give voice to it. I, I saw a couple of comments by Joel Edwards and I thought, gee, he, he sounds like he could be one of those kind of guys. I don't know whether he feels so called. Most charismatic leaders get shot. So we ought to think about it. I mean, it's interesting that a quote from Joel Edwards that I'd made a note of was, um, Christian politicians are overrated if all they bring is integrity and ethics. They must create a mechanism for good service delivery. Couldn't say better. But from what you were saying earlier and the challenges involved in getting to that kind of political platform, I mean, how many compromises even in this um, country where the electoral system is more tightly regulated uh, than in the States, arguably. But, I mean, how many um, compromises is it okay to make you, to get to the point where you might have the platform you're talking about? First of all... Because there'll be a lot of, you know, getting off the plane in Haiti occasions yeah. to become elected as an MP. Let me give you this. In 1976, a little-known fact... I was a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Congress. I decided to run the campaign on a moral basis, which means this, that in raising funding for the campaign, I would not take more than $50 from any single donor, corporate or individual. The teachers union came to me and wanted to support my campaign with a big donation. I said, I'll take $50. The truckers union came with the same proposal, I'll take $50. And my line was always the same, you don't buy me for $50, my grandmother will give me $50. <laughs> I would like $50. You say, how much money did you raise? I told you it takes about $250,000 to run for Congress. To, excuse me, $2,500,000 to run for Congress if you're running against an incumbent. I was running against an incumbent in the 5th District of Pennsylvania, which had never had a Democratic congressman. The man who ran two years earlier had gleaned 18% of the vote. I mean, this is a Republican district. We won't even allow Democratic cows in our district. <laughs> But I rounded up, I was teaching at two places, at Eastern University 
and at the University of Pennsylvania. I was able to round up at least 500 young men and women who were willing to support the campaign. It was in 1976, at the tail end of the Vietnam War, and I was the anti-war candidate running in a highly Republican pro-war district. We ended up with 43% of the vote. And we were closing in on our opposition at such a rapid rate that the party leaders came back and said, will you run again? And the answer was no, because I was a one-issue candidate. I was opposed to the war. And when the war ended, that was it for me. What do I know about politics? I don't know much, but I knew the war was wrong and I could talk about the war. And no matter what they asked me, I would talk about the war. You know how that is as an interviewer on television. No matter, I'm doing that to you. No matter what you ask me, I tell you what I want to say. But, but the issue is, if you round up enough people, you can compensate for your lack of funding. If you can get enough people on your side, you don't have to send out mailings. They can be delivered by people door to door. You don't have to put ads on television. You can have people go out and talk to persons in your district and talk to them personally. It can be done. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Let me say it one more time. It's much harder. It can be done. It should be done. And it's about time we have Christian men and women rise up and say, I'm not going to make compromises. I'm going to be a person of integrity. And can I just ask you finally from me on that? I mean, we're, we're here at an event uh, convened by the Bible Society. Um, in Britain today, my view is that um, the Bible Society is fairly unusual. Um, you know, it may well have decided in the mid-70s to become the Society for Sacred Texts. You know, and have people from all different faiths celebrating their sacred texts, but it didn't. It chose to remain distinctively Christian. And that is probably its USP, but also in a multi-faith society causes all sorts of challenges for anyone who wants to stand up and say, I'm doing this unashamedly from a Christian perspective. So what's your message to, to people here who are, I presume, mostly seeking to live in the world of politics um, as Christians, but recognising, perhaps particularly in Britain, that to do so is a very tricky path to walk and how do they do that effectively because the danger is that to stand up with the kind of vigor and uh, emphatic language that you've been talking about um, in Britain that can just kind of shut doors straight away so how do how do you do this without undermining the integrity of what you're saying but uh, do you have to kind of shout the faith from the rooftops or are there more subtle ways well What's first of all messages? we do live in a, a multi-faith societal system this is new for Christians. Uh, Christian hegemony was always the way it was. It's not the way it is. What we need is a theology of the common good. There are Hindu people, there are Muslims, there are Jewish people, and I could go on, who share a sense of common good. And Christians have been reluctant to connect with them. Now, you raised a very important issue. If you stand up and say, I'm doing this from a completely Christian point of view, how will this go over? In this last election, not this last one, the one before, Howard Dean asked me to serve on the platform committee of the Democratic Party, to form the platform. There are about 
50 of us on the platform committee. The first time I was called upon to speak, they said, what do you have to say as a Christian? What do you want the people in this place to do? I said, it's easy. I want everybody in this place to surrender his or her life to Jesus Christ and become a Christian. <laughs> At which point, a Muslim stood up and said, that's exactly what I'm interested in. Everybody here becoming a Muslim. And he laughed. And the Jewish guy stood up and said, I don't care what you are as long as you're nice to us. <laughs> but there was a kind of sense that I wasn't ashamed to say, this is who I am, this is where I'm coming from, and allow other people to say, this is who I am and this is where I'm coming from. Now the question is, in the midst of your theology, in the midst of my theology, can we come to some principles of common goodness? And the answer is, yes, we can. And that's where we have to operate. Do not be ashamed to identify who you are, what you stand for, what your values are, and what you want to see happen. I mean, I want to see, as an evangelical, you know what I want. Everybody saved, sanctified, Baptist. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I have to work with people of other faiths. And I ask them, as we talk about it, what does your faith say about corruption? What does your faith say about honesty? What does your faith say about integrity? Jesus has two interesting statements that appear contradictory. When he's talking to his disciples, he says this. If you're not for me, you're against me. Whoa. There's no compromising there, is there? Later on in the Gospels, you have uh, some people come and say, there are some people over in the next city. They're casting out demons. They're healing people. They're preaching the same message as you're preaching. But not in your name. Should we go over and stop them? And his response is what? If they're not against us, they're for us. Now, with the Western logical mind, those seem like preemptive statements, but they're not. To his disciples, he calls for radical commitment. But he recognizes that the good things that he is preaching are being articulated in other faiths. And they are doing good things. In short, I am not about to negate the positive contributions that other religions can make to creating what we call the common good. And I think that we as Christians have got to learn what it means to work for the common good. And when I talk to my Muslim associates or my Jewish associates, and we work our way to the common good, we find there isn't much difference between us. I'm a regular contributor to a magazine in the United States called Takum, which is a Jewish magazine and they asked me to write on an issue. And they say, where can Christians and Jews come to agreement on this? And that's the sort of thing I write about. We've got to, in fact, find common ground on issues that will create the common good. And let me tell you this. If you went to a group of Muslims and said, are you in favor of corruption? What do you think they'd say? If you went to a group of Hindu people, would they say, we're in favor? 
they would, there would be total agreement. When we sign this petition, let me just say, we're going to get evangelicals to sign it. I think we need a second petition that goes around and say, and how many of you who aren't Christians will join us? There needs to be a second petition. We'll join you in this cause of eliminating corruption around the world. If we don't do that second thing, the first thing is kind of egoistic. We're the only ones who are concerned about corruption. We are not. I hate to say it because it sounds so unevangelical, but God is greater than the evangelical Christian community. Well, I don't know if that's a good note uh, on which to uh, end the conversation, but now um, I would like to open up for questions. So um, if you'd like to ask uh, one, uh, can we go to you first? And uh, I, there is a roving microphone. And if you can tell us um, who you are and where you're from. Um, thank you. Hazel Southern, Hazel Southern from the Bible Society. Can you tell us why it's important to fight corruption now and what will happen if we don't? Well, I don't think we can end poverty without any corruption. That, I think, is a foregone conclusion. It's been articulated well by the Bible Society, by the Evangelical Alliance, and by this great ministry that is being initiated here today. That uh, the Bible calls us to do this. We have no choice. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of verses in the scriptures that call upon us to respond to the needs of the poor and to fight against corruption. You said that in your opening statements. I think doing it here and now is important because I don't think the church has been as aware of the call to address the needs of the poor as it is today. When I was a boy growing up, which was a long time ago, belonging to an evangelical church, if you talked about ending poverty, changing social and political structures so the corruption was ended, they would give you a bad label. You're one of those Walter Rauschenbusch social gospel preachers. You're not preaching the real gospel. I teach at Eastern University, and the motto of our school is the whole gospel for the whole world. If you're just talking about getting people saved on a personal level, that's part of the gospel. But if you don't bring in this social justice thing, you're, it's not the whole gospel. You need both of these things. The Christian church is, has been great at charity. We've been great especially over the last 25 years. Be people like uh, uh, Ron Sider, who teaches at Eastern with me, my good friend and part-time adjunct professor at Eastern, Jim Wallace, myself. Time Magazine quoted us as saying, it's time for these guys to realize they've won. There isn't an evangelical church that we can find that doesn't care about poor people. That wasn't the case. You wouldn't believe this. That wasn't the case 50 years ago. They didn't give a hoot about poor people. They do, but they only do it in one way, charity. And there's a difference between charity and justice. Charity is very important. When Bono spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast, he said, everywhere I go in Africa, I see the charitable work of Christian people, such as you people here. And the leadership of the evangelical community, 2,000 of them are sitting in front of him. He says, I know I know what you're doing. It's wonderful. But I didn't come to Washington, D.C. to talk about charity. I came to talk about justice. Woo! You could feel the thing change. 
Bishop Romero in Latin America said this. When I fed the poor, they called me a saint. When I began to ask why people were poor, they called me a communist. Unless we address the structural system, charity alone will not solve the problems of the poor. And we have to be concerned about corruption in response to your statement. Not only because the Bible says it, but because the time is right. I mentioned, I mentioned Max Weber earlier. If you were to study Max Weber's theory of social change, which I think is the most comprehensive, three things are necessary. There must be what he calls elective affinity. That is, there has to be this desire on the grassroots for the change, the petition. There's got to be that. The second thing he says is you need a charismatic personality. Number three, there has to be, here's the final line, elective affinity. The times must be ripe for the change. Timing is everything. Once again, since you're from the Bible Society, Go through the Bible and see how many times it says, and in the fullness of time, at the right moment. And where was Jesus born? What does it say in the Gospels? He was born in the fullness of time, just when things were proper and right. And when you study the social situation that existed at the birth of Jesus, he couldn't have been born in a better time. I mean, the times have to be ripe. And I'm saying this, the time is ripe for the church to move from charity, which is done very well, I go out and, and more days than not, I'm getting sponsors either for Compassion International or for World Vision to support children in third world countries. I think it's wonderful what they're doing, but it's not going to end poverty in those countries. There has to be structural change, has to be structural change. And that means we have to end corruption. The times are ripe. Yes, the gentleman in the front row. With, with or without a mic? Oh, it's just coming. Okay. Um, my name's Barry Dunnage. I used to be head of design and publishing at the Labour Party. Um, now I, I'm kind of sort of supposed to be retired and shamed by your own life and activity. Um, I'm interested in the way you've polarised Jesus and Paul. Um, I, sort of. I kind of understand that. I wonder if James isn't somewhere bridging, because what James is saying is, um, here is your, here is my faith, and and it, it can only be realised through works. Faith without works is dead. Meaningless. Without. I self. haven't thought of it. Now that you mention it, I think you're right, and I'm going to have to put that as a little appendage to the, <laughs> okay. To the website. <laughs> okay. Um, what concerns me, I suppose, is that I've, I've been converted for 50 years now, uh, plus, and uh, in those 50 years, I don't think I've been to a church in this country that actually, in a sense, does that or, or believes in doing that politically. It is as though if you go to a local evangelical church anywhere in this country, in my experience, it is as though they are politically neutered. Uh, and it is, it is though they pride themselves in the fact that they are preaching the gospel without, in that sense, being partisan. My belief is that is not what James is talking about. And it is not what, will, what needs to be done so that we can realize um, some of the things you're talking about now. 
that's kind of a question in there. I, I think I have to respond by saying that what has happened is we have allowed two issues to become the only political issues we're interested in. You mentioned one of them, gay marriage. The other one would be abortion. Now, let me just say, they're very important issues. I don't want to minimize the significance of them. But what has happened, especially in the United States, is they've gotten the evangelical community to act as though if you address these two issues, you have fulfilled your social responsibility. I say you haven't. This your Labor Party? Yes. You're going to love this next light. I don't think you can address social justice. This is going to run tremors in place without asking serious questions about capitalism. I knew that would get a stir. But one has to ask a very simple question. What is the motive for production in capitalism? What drives the system? Any textbook would tell you on capitalism it says it's the profit motive. It's the profit motive that makes the system work. Question. Are Christians motivated by profit? I would hope not. I would hope that Christians are motivated by the love of God to meet people's needs. Now, there's nothing wrong with profits. If you don't produce profits, you won't stay in business long enough to meet anybody's needs. But when you have an economic system in the United States, more so than here, but here as well, where wealth is generated by producing stuff that nobody needs. You're going to argue with me on this one? This past Christmas, your problem was not where am I going to get money to buy presents? Your problem was what do I, where, what do I buy for people who have? The answer to that is obvious. Nothing. <laughs> but you didn't have the guts to pull it off. You didn't have the guts to come down Christmas morning and say, nobody's getting anything because everybody in this family's got everything. No, you went, to, you went to Harrods and wandered up and down the aisles praying. And because you're Christians, praying that somebody somewhere invented something that nobody needs so you can give it to the person who has everything. You say you're making the system sound absurd. It is absurd. Next thing, next thing. I say Christians... I'm for free enterprise. That's why I'm not a socialist. I'm not for the government determining individual economic activities. I'm, I believe in free enterprise because I believe that God created people to make those decisions that determine their own destiny and one of those decisions has to be the economic. So I'm neither a capitalist nor a socialist. I am a committed free enterprise person, but I don't believe in laissez-faire capitalism. Look at what laissez-faire capitalism has brought us. Starting with Clinton, he, he was my personal friend. He started by deregulating the banks. Why? There were political reasons for doing that. And what he started, the Republicans put into high gear. And so banks were deregulated, Wall Street was deregulated, loans were made that should have never been loaned, made. People risked the money of their depositors on limb, on mortgages that should have never been given, on investments that were in junk bonds, hoping to make huge, capitalistic, greedy profits. And one day the whole system came tumbling down. Let me give you another place where the evangelicals screwed up big time and continue to fill it. And I'm one of them. 
Evangelicals have opposed Obama health care. I mean, we're not even saying we've got a government health plan. We're just saying poor people have to have health policies. And if they can't buy them, we'll give them the money to buy the policies. It's a total system like that. Evangelicals are warring against this system. 43 million Americans have no health coverage. 14 million children have no health coverage. Can't go to a doctor. Let me tell you what brought on the collapse. This you haven't faced up to. Evangelicals were the primary opposition to a national health plan. Primary. 42% of all housing foreclosures in the United States were foreclosures because people had to make a decision between taking care of the medical needs of a child or a husband or a wife in the family, taking care of somebody in the family or paying the mortgage. Now, if you were given that choice, my kids got cancer, I got a mortgage to pay, I have this money, where do I spend it? You know where you're going to spend it. And it's not just some of the mortgages. This vast minority of the mortgages were foreclosed because we didn't have a health system. And that started a, a deck of cards falling, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And, I, and I'm saying, on the Day of Judgment, the evangelical community has got a lot to answer for on this issue alone. So you see, it's complex. But the minute you say national health plan, all my Republican friends go into high gear and say it's socialism. They don't even know what socialism is. You know, they just think anything. When the government gives money to corporations, that's capitalism. When it gives it to poor people, that's communism. I, I don't get it. I just don't see it. And you mentioned the book of James. You, you go to the book of James. Woe unto you, rich. Woe unto you, rich. Do you not know what's coming on the day of judgment? You who have held back benefits for the poor. It says it. You have held back benefits for the poor. Well, the last time I got arrested, and if you don't get arrested now and then, you want to question your commitment to the cause. <laughs> but it was a long time ago. I haven't been arrested for years. It was about... Ten years ago, I got arrested, and uh, it was a fun arrest. Uh, but I remember it was over the new welfare plan that was being introduced into Congress that would ca ca change the welfare system in America. And corporate greed went to work. Corruption went to work. The doctors, the lawyer, I mean, it was everywhere. So we, we began to say something's got to be done for poor people. And as we stood in the Capitol building, we kept on reciting this verse from the Jerusalem translation of the Old Testament. That's the Catholic version. Tenth chapter of Isaiah. It reads like this. Woe unto you legislators who have made unjust laws that have favored the rich and have ignored the widow and the orphaned. What will you say on the day of judgment? What will you say on the day of the Lord? The Bible society is crucial. The reason why we have these problems is because the people in the United States and the people in the United Kingdom have no idea what the Bible even says. And when I quote that verse, you're saying, well, it doesn't read that way in the King James. That's right, because the, a king <laughs> decided that, that's, that we want the Bible translated. The Catholics... 
God bless the Catholics, came up with a much better translation in which it says these things categorically. Woe unto you legislators who have passed laws that benefit the rich and ignore the poor. And there's two kinds of corruption. There's illegal corruption, paying off the guy on the landing strip in Haiti. And there's legal corruption in which laws are established that allow terrible things to happen. And if you're asking who hurts the poor the most, I would say it's the legal corruptions, not the illegal ones. The illegal ones have to be taken care of. But don't think, if we get rid of that evil guy who took $1,000, that we've solved the problem. The system has to be looked at, and it's a task of Christians. Let me just say what the Bible says about systems. The hermeneutic of the Christian community has been very limited up until recently. Starting with Hendrik Burkhoff, in a classic essay, he was a student of Karl Barth's, called Christ and the Powers. He analyzes the Apostle Paul's use of this phrase, principalities and powers. Principalities and powers are all social, political, and economic issues, institutions that are pres Principalities and power are anything that influences human behavior. Does television influence human behavior? It's a principality and power. If you're Pentecostal, do evil spirits influence human behavior? It's a principality and power. And Pentecostals are quite willing to deal with, de they're always casting out demons. A group of us went to the Pentagon as a kind of uh, comic guerrilla theater and tried to cast demons out of the Pentagon building. Or don't you think there are demonic influences in the Pentagon building? When 40 cents out of every tax dollar spent in America is spent on a military machine while most of the world is suffering. Don't tell me this is not a principality in power that has to be dealt with. The government, General Motors, BP Oil, they're all principalities and powers. Here's what the Bible says in the first chapter of Colossians. God loves principalities and powers. He's willed them to be. Second thing, they rebel. All principalities and powers were created to do good for humanity. Twelfth chapter of Romans. If we knew the Bible, we'd know that. The powers were created to do good for humanity. When they rebel and become agents, not of God, but of the evil one. Then we have to, in fact, do what? Ephesians 6.12. You know that verse? So you're new at this. You've got to get into the Bible, man. You, the Bible Society's got to give this guy a Bible. So, <laughs> here's what it says. Brothers and sisters, we must wrestle not only against flesh and blood, sin committed on the individualistic level. We must wrestle against the principalities and powers and the rulers in the high places. The Bible calls us to wrestle against the systems, against the principalities and powers. And to the end of what? First chapter of Ephesians, the last two verses. The church has this calling to bring all principalities, all powers, all dominions, all thrones into subjection to himself. Next line, through the church. You're right. The church is not fulfilling its responsibility. But I understand that, the, that uh, Roland Williams at least tried, and I think our present uh, Archbishop is trying to raise the questions about bringing principalities and powers. And I'm sure there are some evangelicals who are saying, what's this got to do with the gospel? The gospel is about God creating his kingdom here on earth. I think we have time for one final question or 
let's just hear from both of you, and uh, and then uh, Tony can respond. But uh, keep it brief, because the red I, wine I, is waiting. Forgive me, because I never answer briefly. <laughs> it's uh, Matthew Van Dyenboot from Bible Society. Um, as a Catholic, um, I really appreciated um, your evangelical insights. Um, your fluency with dealing with the scriptural text and the emphasis on Jesus' words and um, also your, your reference to um, Oscar Romero. Um, I'm, I'm interested in where you think there might be mileage for a dialogue. Um, you mentioned dialogue in an interfaith context, but between Christian denominations, uh, particularly around the area of Catholic social thought, which can really helpfully deal with, um, I think, some of the issues that you've raised. So just some remarks on that, but I'll pass over to you as well. I think the political... Oh. Can we just hear from the lady behind oh. as well? Um, okay. And then... Is it? I'm Katie, and I work for an MP. Um, I was interested in what you said about um, kind of third ways, so like non-violent, um, the thing you said about non-violence, and the need for charismatic personalities and leadership. And I was wondering how, as young people who are on board with this stuff, who are starting out in our careers, we should prepare ourselves, like what kind of things should we be doing? So question. briefly, uh, denominational and then... Uh, well, first of all, the dialogue, the interfaith dialogue. I find that whenever we bring Christians and Muslims and Jews together to discuss, we're all too nice. The only real dialogue that I've ever had interfaith-wise was when I was serving on the platform committee of the Democratic Party. And we brought up issues like gay marriage. And we brought up issues like abortion. And we began to come at each other. And we weren't in total agreement, but we worked. That's what the platform committee has to do. Work to common agreement. We didn't win. I found that by the end of the session, I had, I had Muslim uh, coming up and hugging me saying, God bless you for what you said. Jews coming in saying, the Lord is with you. Jeez, I thought he do, was with do them. Do you think it's more difficult between Christian denominations than it is actually, I mean, is it harder to find I other think, Christians? I don't think denominational leaders are the one to carry on this dialogue. I think this is a dialogue that has to be carried on by the laity in the marketplace and in the parliament. This is where the discussion really needs to take place because clergy are too nice to each other. <coughs> well... In some cases, yeah. and just uh, and, and the message. So I mean, there are quite a lot of people here in their perhaps twenties and thirties setting out. Yeah. You know, climbing up the greasy pole. What's your message to them? We're losing the young people in our churches, not because we have made Christianity too difficult. We are losing them because we have made it too easy. The Jesus I follow says, you want to be my disciple? Forsake everything and follow me. And may I say, with this Red Letter Christian website, we have the guy who runs it right here, Brian, about in the last two years, how many unique people have come? About two million young people have come in and said, we're hungry for this. We're hungry for this. So don't get the idea that we're losing them. They're fed up with a church that has watered down Christianity, that does not call for sacrifice, does not re require radical commitment. 
They're hungry for that. That's what I say to the 20s and the 30s. A student of mine who's now become popular over on this side of the pond, a guy that I mentored, uh, Shane Claiborne, he's saying the same thing. And but interestingly, he's not working in Parliament or doing it that kind of way, is it? So it, is there a role for the people here who are wanting to, but he is to be in, in the corridors of power rather than the shame? But he, but he is, oh, for them, I'm saying it's time for you to figure out how to get elected and be consistently honest to God. There you are. Go for it. Get the nomination. <laughs> yeah. I, I did want to answer that young woman's question, and it's a good place to end it with a story, just a story. Hitler was only really stopped once. He rounded up Jews in every country he took over, except one, Bulgaria. Not a single Bulgarian Jew ever died in a concentration camp, in spite of the fact that Bulgaria was a Nazi nation before the war. When the SS came, to Sofia, the capital city, and rounded up as many Jews as they could find, which was about 350, put them in a barbed wire enclosure, and the train pulled up with the boxcars, you know, with the cattle cars, to load the Jews off to take off to where? I don't know, Auschwitz, Dachau, who knows where? It was a rainy, misty night. People were in their houses, frightened. The Jews were wailing and crying because they knew their destiny was not good. Out of the fog, out of the mist, came Metropolitan Carol, the leader of the Bulgarian church. He stood six foot four to start with, but those Orthodox Metropolitans wear those miters on top of their head, which give them an extra foot. So get this picture, out of the fog, comes this creature, seven foot four, black robes, huge white beard hanging down to his waist. His gait as he walked was so great that the men who followed him had to run to keep up with him. He comes to the entrance of the enclosure. They raise their machine guns and say, you can't go in there, Father. He pushes the machine guns aside. And as he goes in, they say, if you go in there, we're not going to let you out. He raises his fists and screams at the top of his lungs a verse of scripture to the good of the Bible Society. To know your scripture. He yells one verse, perfect for the occasion. He says to the Jews, wondering what the church will say in this hour of trial. And his words are these from the book of Ruth. He says to the Jews, whithersoever thou goest, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And the Jews cheered, and the men who came with him cheered, and frightened people came out of their houses, and they ran down to the train station, and the group grew to thousands, and the SS knew it was in trouble, and they got on their trains, and they left and never came back again. In the words of Chesterton, it's not that the message of Jesus has been tried and failed. It's seldom been tried, and when it's been tried, it's been forsaken because it was difficult. Important to remember. It's time to give Jesus a chance. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Tony Campbell. My name is Mark Harris. I'm the Parliamentary Officer for Bible Society and for Christians in Parliament All Party Group, the hosts for this evening. Um, and it's through events like this in Parliament that um, it is our aim to, de to demonstrate the relevance and the goodness of the Bible and the Christian faith uh, in our public life together. And I think we've been privileged this evening to, uh, to experience a great example of, of just that. Uh, in the incisive and thought-provoking ideas that uh, Dr. Campolo has shared with us. We're very grateful to you, Dr. Campolo, for, for giving up your time to, to be with us. Thank you. And to Christopher as well. Thank you. Thank you for helping us to get to right to the heart of these important issues. So would you please join me in, in, in thanking both of them uh, again for, for being with us. Just a, just a couple of things to say as we end. Um, there is more information about the Exposed 2013 campaign on the tables here and uh, over there to my, to my left. Um, and there are leaflets there telling you about three simple actions that you can take. And there are also specific resources for churches and for businesses to take away. And there's one very simple first step that you can take tonight, and that is to sign a global call, which is uh, on this table here at the back, and a table to my left at the back, a global call to, um, to world leaders to, to, to end corruption. So um, please um, don't forget to, to sign that um, as, you, as you go out. Um, but on behalf of uh, Bible Society and Christians in Parliament, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And um, please do stick around now. There'll be drinks and canapes and continue the conversations. Thank you very much. <laughs>